we can see that things that we think of as bad behavior are our children's unskillful attempts to meet their own needs in the best way they can with the best tools that they have based on the brain development they have at the time. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 237. Today, we're talking about parenting from the research with Jen Lumenlon. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clarkfield's Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course and membership, and the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Thank you so much for being here today, my friend. I am so glad to be in your ears. We have a whole spate of amazing episodes recently. I hope you've been listening to Susan Pollock on self-compassion and um, and um, Chris Willard. Wow, those were some amazing episodes. Go back and listen if you haven't. But today is an amazing episode with Jen Lumenlon, and she is the host of Your Parenting Mojo podcast, which distills scientific research on parenting and child development into tools that parents can use to make decisions about raising their children. And we're going to be talking about parenting from the science. What does the research tell you to do? You know, if you've ever wondered if you're parenting the right way, we can talk about that, right? And she really wondered that. And so she decided she would just do the research, go to the research and figure it out, right? And she discovered what was worth paying attention to and actually what wasn't. So, and this, this is pretty fascinating. It actually allowed her to let go of some real core tenets some parenting. Pretty interesting. So I want you to listen for, you know, how when we understand why our children resist things, then we can discover the solutions. How the, you know, we're going to talk about the right way to get your child to eat their vegetables and how what we think of as bad behavior are really our children's unskillful attempts to meet their own needs. And this is so all in amazing alignment with what we do and teach in the Mindful Parenting membership. It's really, really awesome. We've been having some amazing conversations on our live calls, talking about what are we going to do this fall, talking about the guilt, the parental guilt that goes along with that, all, all, kinds, of, all kinds of things coming up. And if you're interested in like a little taste of that, what we do, you know, where we bring together mindfulness, self-compassion and skillful communication in a series of lessons that really guide you through becoming that mindful parent, you can get a little taste of it because coming up soon is the mindful parenting free training. And you're, we're going to be talking about some really key foundational principles, talking about why your kids don't listen to you how to stop yelling, how to parent during this pandemic, oy, oy, oy. and then these really important three myths or beliefs that really keep you from being the parent that you want to be. So this is going to be a really powerful, powerful training. It all happens on September 9th through 14th, but sign up now because I've got some early action sort of bonus fun materials that you'll get in advance of it, and then you can join with your friends, and that's all at Mindful Parenting course.com slash free training. 
So you go to mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And, um, and we should have a link in the notes. You know, sometimes in your podcast player, you can find those notes. If you click around a little, move some things around, and we should have a link there too. Right on your phone, you might be able to find it. So I know you're going to love this episode. Nothing else to announce to you before we dive in. Let's get to it. Parenting from Research with Jen Lumenlin. Jen, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm glad to talk to you too. And I've, as I have a feeling we could talk a lot about parenting things as you kind of ended up, seems like in your journey, ended up kind of being a little bit of a parenting junkie. And we're going to talk a lot about like how science influenced that. And you say you never saw yourself as a mother and that you didn't really feel like you had like that parenting like instinct. So just take us back to this story. Like, were you, were you psyched to have your child? <laughs> You're a little like, Oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just never, people talk about having that clock ticking down and, and I never, felt it. And I never particularly was interested in children. I never liked them particularly. You know, I had two younger sisters and when we would go to friends who had babies, they would say, oh, can I hold the baby? And I would say, I don't have any need to do that. And I was like, we get all our friends would have babies and would you like to hold the baby? No, I, I no, thank you. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, it essentially ended up being that um, when my husband and I got married, he said, I, I, if, if I have to not have children to spend the rest of my life with you, then I'm okay with that. And oh. I would like to have children, but I would rather spend, spend my life with you than, than do that. And so we sort of had that agreement and, um, I was getting older, still not feeling anything. And I was just kind of saying, well, you know, I, I don't really want to be responsible for the biggest disappointment in your life. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, so there was some, there was some definite soul searching there. Um, and eventually decided that, okay, I think I can be comfortable with it. I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing, obviously, <laughs> but, but let's, let's give it a try. And so, yeah, it wasn't an accident in the end. It was a planned decision. And, um, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't say I went into it with any great sense of excitement. Mm. Uh, I definitely spent way too much time on my birth plan. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it and, funny? We're like all yeah, about like getting to the birth <laughs> and then forget about afterwards. Like afterwards is the most important part, and then, yeah. Yeah, but it's all about the birth. Yeah, maybe it's because it's the bit we can control. I yeah. don't know, but yeah, I mean that birth plan went through multiple drafts, <laughs> and and yeah, it was it was really kind of silly looking back on it, and um and I sort of had this fear that I wouldn't be able to bond with her, and so um, I actually ended up naming her Karis, um, which is a Welsh name, and it means one who loves and is loved, and. I just kind of thought, well, <laughs> if I call you this, then <laughs> maybe it will help and uh, and get us off on the right foot. And and it wasn't love at first sight. And it wasn't like as soon as she came out, I just thought, oh my goodness, you're so amazing. I think it was something that really built over time. And uh, that now, I mean, now we have an incredible relationship and, and uh, it's, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about her a lot more through the course of the show, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was definitely probably a non-traditional path to, to getting there. And, and uh, science was a big part of what me, what got me over the hurdle of figuring out how to be a parent. That's funny. Yeah. I, I personally, like I had, I had, um, 
I had had this whole idea of like, yeah, sometime before I'm 35, I'll have kids. I'm similar, <laughs> like I'm not super into little kids, not mm-hmm. super into babies and any of that. And then, um, and then a friend of mine came over my house pregnant with twins and all of a sudden it was like this thing clicked in me where I was like, I like touched her belly and I was like, must have baby. <laughs> and it was like this, I was 29 and it was like, or 28. It was just this like visceral feeling of like, huh. oh, we are on this thing now. Wow. So- I, I have no, I have no way to connect with that feeling. I, I, I'd never <laughs> had any experience like that. <laughs> it made for some really, it was fun. <laughs> It was a good time. (laughs) So you dove into research um, about, and you dove into a degree in child development Mm -hmm. to help educate yourself uh, about children. And I I really appreciate this because, um, actually, I think there was a recent podcast guest of mine, um, MJ Singletary, who was talking about how parenting for him was was too important to just leave it to like, oh, you'll just figure it out as you go along. (laughs) And I can, that makes, you know, I can appreciate that. That's such a logical sentiment, but it's so, and it kind of shines this light of contrast onto like how many of us just like, oh, like this, that's kind of the prevailing thought in our culture is like, we're just going to figure it out as we go along. And so so t- tell me about the research that you dove mm. into and, and, and some of the, some of the things you learned. Yeah. Well, I mean, historically we didn't need scientific research to tell us how to parent, right? We, we it was a cultural thing. We, we parented yeah. the way that we were raised and uh, because we were in close proximity to the people who raised us, they would help us to raise our mm-hmm. own children. Um, and of course, a number of us are now finding ourselves far distant from the people who raised us. You know, my, my, my mother is no longer with us, but my dad is in England. My sister's in England. Uh, my in-laws are on the other side of the US. And so I don't have any family here, even, even if there was somebody who was interested in <laughs> helping me learn how to parent. Um, I, I don't have anyone here who can kind of take on that role in a physical way. And so uh, we are, we do find, kind of find ourselves in this position where we get to make a choice. Do we parent the way that we were raised or do we uh, choose something different? And of course the default is to do it the way we were raised. And some of us were fortunate to have amazing parents and we look back at them and say, yeah, I want to raise my kids just like that. And then some of us see that our own parents were traumatized and that the way that they raised us was deeply impacted by their traumas and their triggers. And that that has had profound impacts on ourselves as people. And lo and behold, when you become a parent, they'll, <laughs> the things you thought you had a lid on, suddenly you realize that you don't have a lid on so much anymore and they're triggering you all over the place. And well, okay, if, if we understand this, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And I really found that scientific research gave me a framework to understand that. So um, so yeah, I, I recognized I had no parenting instinct whatsoever. I had no role models around me. And so I thought, okay, well, I know what I do have. I have amazing research skills. <laughs> but this is something I can put to use here. <laughs> and so I went back to school and got a master's in psychology focused on child development, basically to put a framework around it to say, okay, am I missing anything big here? Because if, mm-hmm. I, if I do it on my own, then maybe I'm going to miss some important thing that I would never have realized was important. And, mm-hmm. um, 
Um, and so that's why I did the master's. And then in the course of doing that, I thought, all right, it's kind of crazy that I'm doing all this learning and not sharing it. And so I started the Your Parenting Mojo podcast as a way of sharing what I was learning with other people. And yeah, it's scientific research has profoundly touched every aspect of my parenting. Um, well, well, I want to ask you about the scientific research, but I also want to ask you about your own parenting, your your own experience as a child and your parents. Like now that you you have a good framework of the different styles of parenting, you could probably really pinpoint what how your parents parented you. So, have you mm-hmm. had any any insights into the the habits and the practices and the assumptions, this sort of set of things that were were inadvertently, consciously, unconsciously handed to you as you were a child growing up. With oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of them. And I don't want you to feel bad about asking this question because I do talk about this on, on the podcast. Um, yeah, I was raised in a typical patriarchal culture. Um, and, you know, in England, it's all about stuffing your feelings down and you shouldn't you shouldn't express your feelings. And um, my mother had an eating disorder and she actually uh, she starved herself to death when I was 10. <gasps> and so, um, oh so, as I said, don't feel bad about it. No, I talked about it on the podcast. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so that, uh, that was sort of something that colored my entire experience, uh, as a child. And my dad was, I see now looking back on it was doing the absolute best he could with the tools that he had, Mm -hmm. but he had experienced, uh, physical trauma in his own life. And of course he had, uh, his wife had died and he's raising two young kids, um, essentially by himself and uh, got married again to somebody who <laughs> neither of us would have picked as a step-parent, <laughs> uh, which, which kind of brought its own whole different set of, of difficulties. And so, yeah, looking back on it, it was, it was not an experience that I can look at and say, yeah, that's, that's what I want for my kid. <laughs> um, yeah. In a way, it was more kind of acknowledging that the people everybody who was involved in that was doing the absolute best they could with, with the, all of the baggage that they brought with them on their journeys. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time that has brought me to a place where I need to make a different choice. I, I can't look to that and say, you know, that, that is a model for what I want. I need to be able to say, yeah, these, these, the way that I was spoken to as a teenager, just as an example, um, I, I figured this out as I was recording a podcast episode on intergenerational Mm. trauma, Mm. I had always been triggered by being interrupted. Um, not, not in a format like this, but by somebody, (laughs) so don't panic there again either, but by people who are close to me, by my husband, it was Mm. just white hot in a second. And it was, it was through the process of, of doing that interview that I realized, oh, my dad used to lecture me when, when I was a teenager, uh, every night about something that I had done wrong that day. And because he was a teacher and that was what he did with his kids at school. And so he would come home and do it to me and, and I wasn't allowed to interrupt. I couldn't express Mm -hmm. an opinion. I couldn't share how I was feeling. And so uh, fast forward to adulthood and I find myself just triggered uh, every time my husband is is you know accidentally stepping on something I'm saying. And so I, now I understand that even just having the insight into that is enormously freeing. It creates just a tiny little bit of space that I can then start mm-hmm. to make bigger through tools like mindfulness <laughs> that I know you teach. And, um, and understanding myself better allows me to then 
make a different choice once I've made that space? How can I choose a, a different path than this anger that has become the default for me? So, so yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely been a, a learning experience for me over the last few years. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, do you think um, there's any, there's any like good seeds or good habits from your family of origin that you would want to pass on? Uh, hmm. <laughs> Maybe you'll have to edit out the long pause. Of pause. <laughs> um, I don't know, actually. Um, okay. a, a lot of it's just kind of stuff that is and stuff that I definitely don't want. Um, I mean, I, I, maybe it's just the idea of, of doing the best you can with the tools that you have and mm-hmm. that while well, those tools were not the tools I needed. You know, they didn't work for me. <laughs> they didn't connect with me. Um, but but when we learn better, we do better. Yeah. And um, we can't we can't look back and fault ourselves for uh, what we didn't know then. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that that doesn't help, it doesn't move anything forward. It all it does is kind of this self flagellation makes us less able to engage in the self-compassion we actually need mm-hmm. um, and, and being able to see them uh, doing those things that didn't connect with me and, and, and just accepting that and saying, um, I see that you did the best you could. I accept that. And, and I'm going to make a different choice. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's amazing to think about the suffering that has been in uh, I would probably say like 99% of families and that is carried on. And, um, and yeah, that, that stuff, it stuff it down model, uh, doesn't, doesn't work. So, wow. Okay, cool. So you had that sort of authoritarian kind of thing happening and a whole, whole bunch of suffering in there. Mm -hmm. Whole bunch of suffering, <laughs> and and this is you know, to be clear, this is what psychologists call small t trauma. You know, this is um, uh, lack of connection with parents. This is humiliation by parents. This is not you know witnessing murders or sexual abuse mm. or anything like that. Um, that psychologists refer to as big t traumas, and and that's that's not to minimize small t traumas, but just that they they can they can still have a very meaningful impact on a person, um, even though they wouldn't necessarily be captured in. Some of them are, but not all of them are captured in a tool like um, the adverse child ex- childhood experiences mm-hmm. uh, quiz that you can take and and uh, learn how uh, events in your childhood have impacted you. Uh, there's a lot of research on how those those experiencing those kinds of things in childhood can actually physically impact your body with things like heart disease and um, uh, a whole host of, of you know, mental conditions like depression that are more obvious, but, but even the, the ones that are deeply connected to your physical being um, are, are actually associated with having experienced those kinds of traumas in your, in your childhood life. Yeah. Yeah. I would. Yeah. Um, that adverse childhood experiences quiz is something I have learned about mm-hmm. recently. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really interested in, to learn more about that, but I want to, um, I'm curious about the, I, I would like to sort of shift into thinking about, I mean, maybe that's part of it, but what are you, you say that 
the, all this research that you did mm-hmm. helped you figure out what's important to pay attention to mm-hmm. and what is it, what, what you can <laughs> ignore. So I, I wonder if maybe it would be fun to start with what are the things that we don't, we shouldn't stop worrying about? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there are so many of those. And, and that was kind of the genesis of the podcast was an, was an email from a, a parenting platform that shall, be, shall remain unnamed that said something like uh, how to tell what developmental delays your child is going to have. Oh, and God. I just thought, and it's, you know, it's a clickbait title to get you yeah. to read the email and click through to their platform so they can serve you an ad. And um, it, it's not actually designed to be useful uh, or um, really help you understand if this even is a thing to pay attention to. And so I just thought, okay, somebody needs to do better work than this. And so, yeah, there are a bunch of things that, that we can not worry about as much as we think. And, and some of these are things that your listeners are going to be super familiar with. I mean, things like growth mindset, which is bandied around uh, in parenting circles and in schools now as being the solution to all of our problems. If our children just have growth mindset, then they're going to get ahead in life. And, and yeah, growth mindset can be a potentially uh, useful tool. But when we actually look at large numbers of studies and the effects on people across large numbers of studies, the effect is relatively minimal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, because a lot of these studies are done on middle-class white children, as the vast majority of psychological studies are, and then they're extrapolated out as if they're relevant to all mankind, what ends up happening is that we apply them in schools and we say to the uh, black and brown children who are experiencing poverty and a host of other factors associated with poverty, if you could just have growth mindset, if you could just be more like middle-class white children, then you'll succeed, you'll get ahead, you'll be able to get out of your neighborhood, you'll be able to achieve your dreams. And that's completely the wrong <laughs> the wrong way of thinking about it. What we should be thinking about is how to address systemic issues like poverty, mm. like racism, uh, like the things that are actually impacting our children in these classes, rather than locating the problem in themselves and saying, mm. you just need to be more gritty uh, more and, and have more growth mindset, and then you will be able to succeed. Um, and of course, holding white children, middle-class white children up as the standard um, that, that everybody should should be working towards is, is its own issue as well. And so we, we dig into that a lot in the podcast and in terms of understanding what are the implications for different groups of people of this research when it's only conducted on one group of people and then applied to everybody. Um, what does this actually mean when it's applied in real life? Uh, to situations like school. And so, yeah, growth mindset is a huge one. I mean, for sure, you you can teach your child you can't tie your shoelaces yet (laughs) Um, rather than, oh, I I can't tie my shoelaces, I'll never be able to tie my shoelaces. There's nothing wrong with that. But but the idea that that is going to be the skill that makes the incredibly meaningful difference in the way your child turns out is, I mean, the evidence just isn't there for it. So Mm -hmm. so don't worry about it. (laughs) Great, great. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and and the, the same is similar for grit, really. Mm. Um, the idea Lots that you need to stick thing. with something and, and really persist in it. Um, and obviously that's a, a quality that's quite useful in school. It, it helps um, teachers to engage children and makes them easier to teach. And so we think they should have focus and they should be able to concentrate on something. Uh, but will it, be, will it be the skill that creates a difference um, between our child and another child? the the effect sizes are not meaningful. Mm. (laughs) So why are we spending all our time worrying about whether our child is gritty enough? It it doesn't make sense for us to spend our energy there. 
Um, mm-hmm. Imaginative play is another one where I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, should I, do I have to play with my child? I, I hate doing imaginative play. <laughs> I just don't want to be a princess or a fairy or whatever it is that they oh want me to be. Um, do I have to do this? And, and the research says, no, you don't have to do it. <laughs> Yay! Put Yay. that baby down. <laughs> I know. Or yeah, whatever, whatever it is that your child is playing. Um, the reason that uh, researchers are focusing on this is because it's cheap. It's a cheap intervention that can have a tiny impact on a child's outcome. And once again, when we're talking about outcomes, we're talking about holding middle-class white children to this um, higher standard and saying, okay, everybody else needs to be more like them. (laughs) And and then we'll close the achievement gap instead of acknowledging that middle-class white children actually don't do that well on measures of standardized learning. um, And that we actually need to... Uh, change the way we think about learning so that everybody uh, has a form of learning that is recognized and valued by our schools and by our culture. So mm-hmm. um, that, mm-hmm. that aspect of it is, is completely ignored by, by the research and by the school system. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so don't, don't worry about playing with children if you don't like it. Well, <laughs> you get imaginative play. <laughs> what about, um, do you know anything about, uh, what, what about imaginative play amongst children themselves? Cause oh yeah. I mean, if, if they love it, go for it. That. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. very, very important, especially when Absolutely. they're younger. You know, is yes. to have that time amongst themselves for imaginative play versus a very scheduled existence with lots yes. of um, organized. Yeah, play, play is awesome. Play. Mm-hmm. Uh, all children play. Uh, the even the anthropological research says that in cultures where play is not encouraged, children will try to find ways to sneak playtime. <laughs> mm-hmm. So all all children enjoy playing, want to play. Um, it's valued more in some cultures than in others. And we're at a point now where we do put this big premium on allowing children to uh, spend time doing these things that they really enjoy. And yes, absolutely, we should be uh, encouraging that. Um, the, the part to tease out, though, is that doesn't mean we need to be the ones that are engaging in it, that are promoting it, that are saying, you know, we, let, let's go and do this. It'll, it'll be so fun as you've got your teeth gritted and <laughs> wishing you were anywhere but. So if it happens organically, absolutely encourage it, let it happen. But don't feel as though your child's missing out if they're not doing it or if you're not encouraging it, not participating. Oh, I'm so relieved to hear the, <laughs> this, Jen, because I, I tell parents and clients this all the time like that. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to like be playing, you know, Candyland with your child. Yeah, and now you can say makes you want to hang yourself. <laughs> and research says that because yeah, I mean it's it just makes sense from a, a standpoint of like if this is horrible for you, then why would you do it? Find some yeah. other way to like have fun with your kid. Um, but I can, I can almost hear like the clouds parting and the angels. Like, yeah. Oh. yeah. And, and one, one thing that I do encourage parents to do is to, to just think through why you're having a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, w- one thing I hear from a lot of parents is that, oh my goodness, it's boring. And, and I find myself lying on the floor and my kids wanting me to play with them. And I'm just looking at the dust on the bookshelf thinking I could be doing something right now. And, and actually what I encourage parents to do is to, in a way, kind of challenge themselves and mm-hmm. say, well, if, if this really does feel, fill your child's cup and you're interested in exploring this, you know, don't feel as though you have to do it. If, if you just can't do it, then just don't do it. Um, but if you can, if you want to 
push at the edges of this, use this as your mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, understand what, where is this resistance in me? Where am I feeling this in my body? Why am I feeling this resistance? Is it because our culture says we must be doing three things at once or we're not, um, we're not busy enough, we're not doing enough, we're not goal-directed enough, and that spending this time with my child not on something that is productive for me, as it were, in, in air quotes, um, is a waste of time. Can I actually find a way to get comfortable with that and enjoy that? So, so that that's one thing you can do to to bring an additional layer to it. And that's actually something I've been doing um, when I I've been working a lot of hours these days, and and I spend an hour with my daughter one on one time doing whatever she wants to do every day. And yeah, sometimes she wants to do things that I don't particularly find interesting, and I use that as a time to to be a hundred percent focused on her and what she's doing and how she's noticing things and what she's paying attention to and also what's coming up for me as I'm, as I'm engaging in this with her. So um, yeah, it, it can be if, if listeners are maybe struggling to find time for a mindfulness practice, yeah. that can be an awesome way of, of kind of packaging those two things together if you want to push the boundaries of, uh, of your thinking on imaginative play. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend that too. And it's such a, a great practice in, in so many reasons because you know that they feel that attention in this yeah. really beautiful way. And you develop and practice building the muscle of some patience and skill and non-reactivity yeah. that, so that you can be present for these, you know, maybe uncomfortable, not so pleasant moments, but it also is the muscle that allows you to be present for the comfortable and the beautiful and the joyful ones and really see your children because they're brand new every day. They change so quickly. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, are there any other things that we can we should stop worrying about? <laughs> but did, did you do any of the research about like you know sleeping and all those issues that people worry about with really young kids? Yeah, I tend to focus on the age uh, starting around age one, um, mm-hmm. just because there are so many resources available um, on the younger ages. And mm-hmm. then once the child gets to around age one and they're more mobile, and you realize, oh, discipline's a thing. I need, I need mm-hmm. that. <laughs> How do I do that? Um, and and so it's this entirely different tool set that I think that the research becomes much more useful for. Um, I will say that I did do one episode on sleep and the it's a difficult thing to understand obviously because because children babies can't tell us um what what whether sleep training is difficult for them and if so how and of course there are people who are saying well if the baby's crying then yes it's difficult for them and there is actually a bunch of research that says that actually babies are not very well impacted or they're not harmful they're not harmed by sleep training by crying mm-hmm. but then you dig into the methodology and you find out that these researchers are using cortisol tests and cortisol is a hormone it's uh, you can get it in your saliva so it's easy to, to test for it um, and it has a really short half-life and you and so it it, it ex- it's out of your body really quickly once it's peaked. Um, and the researchers are testing the morning after the oh, sleep training okay. has occurred. And so, well, they're not finding high levels of cortisol. Well, I wonder why not. <laughs> and so when, when you dig into it, you realize that the research is really confounded by some of these, uh, these factors. And, and so it's really hard for us to, to get a clear picture of it. And the listener actually reached out to me and said, if you had a million dollars and um, all the resources that you needed, what would be the thing you would choose to study? And that was actually my answer was mm. 
how do we actually get to the root of understanding sleep training um, mm. and, and the balance of obviously uh, this is not just about the child. The child is not the only person in this relationship. Oh yeah. <laughs> the parent is going to be a better parent if we can just get the child to sleep and maybe the parent needs some time by themselves. If they're not constantly going into the child's room. And so how can we understand that as a package of information mm. rather than just this tightly focused question of, you know, cortisol and, and how mm. is it affecting the child? Yeah. So, so yeah. still sort of up in the air. Yeah, not as clear an answer as we would like for sure, um, unfortunately. I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I had this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clarkfields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You will be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com So what are some things that are important to pay attention to? Um, <clears throat> I think one of the one of the main ones is I mean, it's all kind of connected to ideas of rewards and punishments, actually. But um, one thing that a lot of parents struggle with is, is getting their children to eat vegetables. Mm. <laughs> and the research on that topic is so interesting. And, and actually, mm -hmm. that's one that is actually pretty clear. And so it's a, it's a fun one to work with. Um, so one way that parents try to get their children to eat vegetables is to use vegetables as what's called a gateway food. So you're, you're using it as a gateway to something the child likes better, to dessert, oh. to chocolate, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And so the research shows that <laughs> when we use vegetables as a gateway food and say you can have your dessert once you've had your vegetables, the child ends up liking the gateway food less. 
Oh yeah, I can I can imagine. I mean, it just makes so much sense out of the gate. Like if you say to me, I'm at a restaurant with you, and you say to me, Hunter, you know, eat these, you know, eat these this I don't know, like duck pate, and mm-hmm. I'll I'll get you some dessert. I'm gonna think <laughs> automatically think that this duck pate is miserable stuff. But yes, I need some reward, you know, some kind of bribe to get there. Yeah. And so, uh, and then the next step in that is the only factor that predicts how many vegetables our child will eat is how much they like vegetables. (laughs) And so so what we're doing is we're, uh, I I never like to use kind of uh, war metaphors because I I, I don't want us to think that we're in, Mm -hmm. in a, in a uh, power-based relationship with our child. But if I, if you would permit me one here, we're, we're sort of winning the battle as it were, because we're getting the vegetables into our child tonight. And it feels as though that's something we should be doing, but we are, we're losing the war because we're making our child like vegetables less. And therefore they're going to choose to eat fewer vegetables than they would if they liked vegetables. And so, yeah, so not rewarding your child using dessert for eating vegetables is a key, uh, is one key area that I've kind of said, okay, we're just going to let this go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so, well, well, how does that, what does that practically look like in our house? Um, We uh, have a situation where um, I'll serve a balanced meal that has usually some form of starch like rice. Some, it will have a vegetable and it will have uh, a protein. And, uh, my daughter is allowed to have a small serving of dessert anytime she likes. And that might Mm -hmm. be a teaspoon of ice cream. That might be, you know, just a, a very small serving of whatever it is that we're having. And so it removes that reward element from it. Mm Um, so that if, if, if she wants to only eat the protein, and still have a small teaspoon of ice cream, absolutely fine. No, no argument from me there whatsoever. If she wants to have the teaspoon of ice cream before dinner even starts, I'm fine with that too. It's not filling her up. Mm. <laughs> um, where we kind of balance this idea of um, trying to ensure that our child is getting nutritious food in their bodies with not using it as rewards is to say that... Um, in in general, our food, our, our bodies need a lot of different kinds of foods. And um, I've offered you three foods that I know that you like. And if you, um, and actually, let me backtrack on that, because we try not to use the word if, because that is that word if mm-hmm. that sets up the reward. If you do this, then that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, so it's presenting it as this idea of your body needs all different kinds of foods. And <clears throat> when we have eaten a balance of foods, then we will all have dessert together. And mm-hmm. so um, that removes the, I must do this to get that. And, and so if she doesn't want to eat any vegetables at all, then that's fine. She, she doesn't have to eat any and she can still have the teaspoon of dessert just to get that flavor of, you know, sometimes we just want a flavor of sweet after we eat, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not withholding that uh, from her. Um, but at the same time, I'm not saying, okay, well, you can just eat the protein and then have a big scoop of ice cream every night. So it's, it's sort of finding that balance between the two um, in a way that's that's removing the reward aspect from it. So it's it's kind of edging, educating her about the balance of exactly. all, all the different needs. It's it's interesting. It um, it kind of makes us makes me think that rather than thinking about this sort of uh, this reward system, that we should be focusing on maybe like learning how to cook better vegetables. My my yes. daughter gets excited <laughs> about my husband's Brussels sprouts. Like she when I was 
ordering food the other day. She's like, "Will you order Brussels sprouts?" I mean, what? <laughs> I know what order. What kid says that? But she loves my husband's Brussels sprouts, and they actually have like, they're. We've had these conversations. They kind of talk about their friends. Oh, my friends don't think that's gross, but you yeah. cook it really well, so I think it's really that's pretty hard good. Because they have a bitter yeah. taste. A lot of vegetables they have that kind of bitter taste that kids don't like. The key yeah. is for his Brussels sprouts is that he uses um he uses some um, you know garlic and onions uh, sautéing, but also a bit of like a little sweet teriyaki. Mm, yeah, uh, and that sweetness kind well, of works do it. A bit of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that's a big way that you can um, start to move in the in the direction of. Uh, increasing the amount of vegetables that your child will eat without having to set up this reward scenario. So yeah, I mean, as an example, last night, uh, we had salmon teriyaki uh, with rice and broccoli and and my daughter actually doesn't love the teriyaki sauce, but she does love cheese. And so I put, um, I melted some cheese onto her broccoli. And so it's, it's not a massive amount. It's just a little bit grated over the top. And, and she asked for seconds of broccoli. And so the, uh, the research that's been done on this says that you actually don't have to use sauces, use cheese, use the favorite food forever. Mm. If you can, the, the, the magic number seems to be around maybe 10 to 20 exposures. If you can kind of pair these really pleasurable things that your child likes, whatever the sauce is, whatever the cheese is, with a food that they don't love as much because broccoli isn't her favorite food. Um, then over time, you can actually even withdraw that pairing and chances are they probably will still keep eating that food. So, um, so parents might be kind of worried about it and thinking, well, is this a crutch? Is, am I going to have to make this special sauce every time I serve broccoli for the rest of my life? Um, no, that's not, that's not necessarily the case, but the pairing can really help the child to get over that kind of initial aversion, but, and then they will start to accept the food more and more. Mm, that's a good idea. In our house, we always did like, you don't have to eat it, but you must taste it because, and we explained to them that because your, your palate gets mm-hmm. trained, you don't there's a tons of things you won't like for a long time. And then after a while you like them. Um, and they, and we've just talked to them about that and that's just, so they could just take a little taste. We just want them to taste everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, it definitely takes a bunch of exposure. So it does take yeah. some Yeah, and, and just a, a couple of refinements on that to, to help mm-hmm. maybe help parents who have, have tried it and struggled with it with a child who still doesn't want to. Um, when you're offering that tiny taste, offer it as a tiny taste. I mean, I, I'm talking like a quarter of a teaspoon yeah. and just put that amount on their plate because sometimes what children will hear is not the what you said or, or what the parent is saying. You don't have to eat it if you don't like it. But uh, if I do like it, I'm going to have to eat it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which can, I mean, it, it, we, we, we didn't intend it in that way. It doesn't seem threatening to us, but maybe to the child, they're thinking, I don't know if I'm going to like this. What if I like it a little bit? I'm going to have to eat that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so if we just offer this tiny, tiny, tiny little bit, then that can kind of remove the pressure from the situation. And oh yeah, I, I, I can manage a quarter of a teaspoon that, that, that will be okay. That's so um, smart. Yeah. And yeah. Then, and we've always said like, you can spit it out too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nobody, nobody's forcing you to keep it in your mouth if you truly do hate it. Um, and, and I would even say that the idea of you have to taste it, you could soften it a little bit too. Um, I, I would really appreciate it if you would try it so that they don't feel as though they're kind of backed into a corner. Cause some kids, when you, when you uh, kind of put that, this, this 
you do need to do this on it, then they'll just, their reaction is to resist. The, the only choice they have at that point is to resist. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you soften it a little bit and just say, this is still your choice. This is still your body. I'd really appreciate it if you would try it. Here's, here's a quarter of a teaspoon. If you don't like it, spit it out. Um, and, and because it's important because your tongue is learning right now, what it means to taste different things. And, and you, even if you don't like it now, you probably will when you get older. And so that some of those kinds of tools can really help to get over those hurdles. So you're describing, um, your, what you're describing as far as food is also you're describing things, um, some respectful parenting and some respectful ways of talking to your children where you're allowing them to make decisions on their own body. You're, uh, you know, uh, on some parents might see that as saying, well, then they're not doing what I'm saying, you know, (laughs) then that's disrespectful or whatever, right? Like they're not, that I'm not holding that boundary. And your research has also given you some confidence in some of those respectful parenting tenants. So I, I would wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, um, I, you know, because this is something I truly believe in and I see as much more effective in the long run as well as just so much better for building relationships is to have respectful communication, respectful um you know, discipline in the sense that we're teaching our kids what, you know, how to do things. Um, but a lot of people are scared of that because it's new and unusual to them and they're worried and they may have, they may, I know I have a bunch of listeners who say to me, Hunter, I've been listening to your podcast. I may be even doing the mindful parenting membership and, but my partner still wants to punish Mm -hmm. and what do I do? So just would love for you to talk a little bit how you develop that confidence. What, what research pointed you to that, I guess, to start with? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's so many layers to what you just said. I mean, why, why do we feel as though we have a need to control our children? <laughs> um, because we were raised in this patriarchal culture where uh, one person is going to be in charge. Usually that's the male because in a patriarchal society, uh, masculinity is privileged over femininity, over anything else. Um, and so we have this view that somebody needs to be in charge. And if somebody isn't in charge, then something's going wrong somewhere. Um, as a parent, it's my job to be in charge and my children should do what I tell them to do because Mm -hmm. I did what my parents told me to do, or I got spanked (laughs) or whatever it was that happened to us that, that we have negative associations with misbehaving. Um, and so when I think when parents are first starting to learn about respectful parenting, they're thinking, okay, so I'm, wait, I'm not going to be in control. Well, then who is in control? Because if I'm not in control, <laughs> are my kids in control? <laughs> um, and I don't want that. And, and that seems really bad. And yeah, so we're, we're not saying that we're going to hand over the keys to the kingdom to our kids and they're going to run the show from now on. That's, that's not what we're talking about here with respectful parenting. Um, what we're talking about is having a relationship that is based on uh, mutual understanding of trying to meet each other's needs. And I know you use language of nonviolent communication a lot on the podcast and um, the idea that, that every person has needs and we're all trying to do the best that we can to get those needs met. That goes for you, Hunter, that goes for me, that goes for my daughter, for your children. Um, and we sort of think that our children, I mean, they they don't really have needs. They just 
they just do stuff and, and some of it annoys us and they need to stop doing that stuff because it annoys us when actually that behavior is a way of trying to meet their need. Um, if, if you think about you're, you're having a bad day, your husband comes home and you snap at him because he didn't put the trash out or whatever it was, um, that was, that was an unskillful attempt on your part to meet a need that you have that was maybe for connection or maybe for more ease in your life or, um, to, to spend a bit more time alone because you needed to decompress after your day, whatever it was, it wasn't about your quote, bad behavior towards your husband. And the same is true when we, when we can shift our focus and see that happening in our children as well, we can see that things that we think of as bad behavior are our children's unskillful attempts to meet their own needs in the best way they can with the best tools that they have based on the brain development they have at the time. Mm -hmm. And so when they are having tantrums, when they're saying, no, I don't want to do that, when when they're being what we see as rude, um, they, they're at a point in their lives where this is the best tool they have to, uh, to try and meet the need that they have for connection with you. I mean, so often it's, <laughs> mm -hmm. they have a need for connection and we need some space. <laughs> and, and so they're kind of coming towards us and our needs seem like they're conflicting with their needs. And, and, uh, if we can, if we can imagine it a little bit differently, um, we can find solutions to meeting everybody's needs that we wouldn't have discovered before. Um, and so the, I, I really feel like nonviolent communication and, and that idea of understanding and meeting needs is supported by self-determination theory, which is a very well-established theory in the psychological literature. And it basically says that all people are trying to meet, and I, I, they, I think they refer to it as needs again, but it's a slightly different way of thinking about it than in NBC. And so all, all people are trying to have autonomy and competence and relatedness. And there's so much research that backs up these ideas. Um, you know, we, we want to have control over our own bodies. We want, we want to be able to say what happens in our lives. That's the autonomy part, the competence part. We want to feel good at things. We want to uh, know that when we make a bid for connection, that our, the person we're, we're trying to connect with sees that and is able to respond with something that we need. And that's kind of linked to relatedness as well. You know, we want to be able to be seen by other people um, and, and see other people as well and be in those kinds of relationships. And so, um, yeah, so the, there, there's kind of that aspect, which is, which is fully supportive of these tools like nonviolent communication. And, and even, um, when we, when we think about respectful parenting tools, like resources for infant educators, RIE, um, mm. which is a, a tool that's often used with younger children. Uh, I, I did a, an entire episode actually looking on the science behind the basic principles of RIE. And it turns out that virtually all of them are <laughs> supported by science, even though RIE itself wasn't sort of developed as a, you know, we're going to use science as <laughs> to, to come up with a respectful way of raising our children. What we find is that the principles themselves are actually underpinned by scientific research. And so when I see these things, that, that makes me say, okay, <laughs> I can exhale. <laughs> I can have confidence. I can have confidence in what I'm doing um, because I can see that uh, so many of these tools that intuitively feel right to me as a person are also uh, backed up by scientific research. Look, you do have some parenting intuition there. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, the thing was, I, I, but I didn't, I didn't know about them. I, 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 I discovered Rye Respectful Parenting when I, when my daughter was four months old, when I was yeah, thinking tell about us, Tell us a little bit more about what that is too. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, resources, <clears throat> excuse me, resources for infant educators, which is abbreviated to Rye, was developed by Magda Gerber. Uh, she mm-hmm. was, uh, she came from Hungary and, and she moved to New York first and then LA and, and developed this approach to working with children that's very different to how we normally do. I mean, it's things like before you pick the child up, you, you say to the child, I'm going to pick you up now. Um, and, and, and we would think, well, why would you do that? And, and there are actually videos on YouTube that you can search for where a caregiver says to the, the baby, I mean, we're talking an infant, a few months old, I'm going to pick you up now. And the child stiffens the back of their neck. Mm. because they know they they know what you're saying <laughs> they can't respond and say okay mama but they they hear you and they are they're understanding and they're cooperating with you they mm. are preparing themselves to be picked up mm. so if we kind of accept this premise that children are that even infants are whole people we can shift the way we interact with them to um to do things like that in, instead of when they have a snotty nose kind of reaching up behind them to wipe them so that they don't see us coming <laughs> I mean, <laughs> would we want to have that done to us as an adult? <laughs> Possibly not. Um, so instead saying, I'm going to wipe your nose now and then coming in for the wipe from the front where they can see you. Um, so so it's, it's basically a set of principles that uh, <clears throat> brings respectful parenting to the very young, uh, working with very young children. And yeah, I discovered it when my daughter was four months old because I was thinking, okay, h- how am I going to be how am I going to have a good relationship with her without and, and, and not have her walk all over me, but not be the parent who says no all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, four months old, I'm already thinking about discipline. <laughs> 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 and, and it was a friend who introduced me to Rye and, and it, the way it happened was they were visiting us and their son goes running down the hallway towards our bedroom. And the mother says, um, Jack, that room's private. You can come into the playroom or you can come back down to the living room. Mm-hmm. And Jack stands on the threshold to our bedroom and then turns around and comes back down to the living room. And I looked at her and I said, how did you do that? <laughs> Very skillful. Okay. Yes. I mean, it, it's tools like offering choices and, yeah. and all the groundwork that she has laid around setting boundaries and, um, mm-hmm. and, and having a, a relationship that recognizes his need to be curious and his need to see things. Um, and at the same time we're in somebody else's house and it's not appropriate to go into their bedroom. And, um, and so that, that was what launched the journey. And, and when I, when I first learned about it, I thought, yes, this is the missing piece. I can love my child as much as I want, but if I don't have respect, mm-hmm. then, uh, then the love by itself is necessary, but not sufficient. Respect is the missing piece. And so that was the part that felt right. And then the scientific research underpinning it was like, okay, yeah, now, now I know (laughs) I feel it and I know it. And and this is what we're going to do. Instincts engage. I love it. (laughs) Finally, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for explaining that, Jen. Um, Yeah. It's so wonderful because you're, you know, by focusing on infants, you're practicing seeing your child as a whole person, treating them as a whole person, uh, speaking respectfully to them as a person from the very beginning, which is brilliant. And so then you're not having to sort of like, 
rewind and and relearn your your language when your child's two or three or four or five and they're just so used to resisting you that that is resistance is like a train that's hard to turn around Mm -hmm. um uh, so you you're looking at seeing how the research really sort of supports this uh, the science res- re- supports this respectful parenting. But I think you've also seen a lot about how you've seen that the research um, maybe does not support other forms of parenting that are maybe more traditional, like um, like using orders and threats and reward and punishment. Yeah. And, and so um, what it ultimately comes down to is, uh, are, are those methods successful and are they successful at what? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, parents ask me, are timeouts effective? Are rewards effective? Are um, punishments effective? Are, uh, is spanking effective? And, and the, the, what the real question is, are they effective at what? Are they effective at changing your child's behavior? Quite possibly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your child doesn't want to get spanked again. Um, possibly they will learn not to do the thing that got them spanked. Possibly they will also turn around and then spank their sibling because they've mm-hmm. realized that using um, physical uh, punishment is something that a person who has power can do to a person who has less power and that they have less, you know, they have more power over their sibling and so they can then hit their sibling. Um, what what that allows us to then think through is okay if i if i want my child to uh not just do things because they fear me to do things because they will get my approval through through a positive interaction like a reward if i want my child to have a deep sense of conviction in their own values and maybe take on some values as well that i think are important um, but to to think through those critically and say, yeah, I've thought about that and I agree with that and I'm going to do that too, <laughs> yes. rather than just kind of blindly following, then no, tools like spanking and punishments and rewards are not effective at doing those things. So that that's what... Um, moving beyond behavior really does for us. When we stop seeing the behavior as the problem, we can stop using tools to change the behavior because the behavior isn't the issue. The issue is what's going on in our relationship with our child and and how are each person's needs getting met or not met? And how do we need to shift our interactions so that we can meet everybody's needs more of the time? And yeah, that's when we start getting into um, tools that allow us to do that in a way that we don't need spanking, we don't need punishments, we don't need rewards because we're all working together to solve problems that we have together. These aren't the child's problems that need to be fixed. These are problems that we have in our relationship that we need to work on together. So I think it's very helpful for the listener if we put some of this in context with an example. Sure. So for instance, you know, brushing your teeth at bedtime. Oh, so yeah. in a perennial favorite, perennial <laughs> favorite. Oh boy. And we're all so exhausted by this point in the night and we're just like, do the thing and let me have some peace. And yeah. so we say, would you please brush your teeth, you know, brush your teeth or generally most people would just say, give an order, brush your teeth. Or we might say, you know, Hey, it's time to brush your teeth and your child doesn't want to. So in, in sort of an authoritarian, um, situation, the parent might say, if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to lose your um, screen time, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, would you walk us through, A, why this is not effective, and then B, what would be an effective way to hold the boundary of, you know, we need to brush our teeth at night? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, fun- it's funny you should mention toothbrushing because I actually have an entire blog post. <laughs> 
<laughs> walking you through this exact thing. So yeah, if, if, um, if listeners want to see this kind of step-by-step in action, yourparentingmojo.com forward slash toothbrushing, I believe is the link. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, so the, the traditional approach uh, might be to marry a completely unrelated consequence to this idea of toothbrushing. I mean, what does screen time have to do with toothbrushing? Firstly, it, it's, it's not even a logical consequence. It's, a, it's an illogical <laughs> consequence because yes. there's no connection. Um, and so your child, obviously, if they enjoy watching screen time, they don't want to lose the screen time. Chances are they're going to comply with you. Uh, are you going to have the same struggle again tomorrow? Probably. Yes. yes. <laughs> Probably. Felt a habit of resisting you, and they're yes. a little annoyed yes. that you've done this mean thing to them. Yes, and and they have no reason to comply. Why would they want to comply? Um, you haven't connected with them in any way. Um, you haven't. Um, kind of you the, the the step that's missing here is we haven't taken the time to understand why they don't want to brush their teeth and this is the key because this is this is what gets us to that level of understanding each other's needs why is it they don't want to brush their teeth um and so what we find ourselves doing is if we if we decide okay i don't want to punish um, I don't want to take away the screen time. Let, let me, let's see, I can, let, let me try that game where I look for the, the monsters in their teeth or look for the dinosaurs or let's try a different toothbrush or, or uh, 15 different flavors of toothpaste or um, let, let's let them watch a show while we're doing it. And, and so we throw this spaghetti at the wall, hoping that something will stick. And we don't know if it's going to stick because we don't know why the child doesn't want to brush their teeth to start with. Mm. <laughs> and so when we understand that, we find solutions. And so we went through this exact thing um, ourselves when I was first discovering these tools. So yeah, we were, we were doing all the, all the things I just talked about. We, we still have 15 of those toothbrushes in our, <laughs> in our bathroom. And now we use them for scrubbing the grill. Um, and so uh, as I'm learning these tools, I'm starting to apply them and I'm thinking, okay, why doesn't she want to brush her teeth? I don't know why she doesn't want to brush her teeth. (laughs) And she was still pretty young at the time. And so when, when children are young, they might not be able to say, well, mama, it's because X, Y, Z. Um, but you can hypothesize, you can still guess, you can say to them, Hmm, I'm wondering why it is you don't want to brush your teeth. Is it because you don't like the flavor of toothpaste? And if your child's old enough to indicate some kind of agreement, then you will probably find that they will indicate in some way that they're agreeing with you or, or they'll let it slide and you'll know it wasn't the toothpaste. And what we realized in the end was that it wasn't about the toothpaste or the toothbrushes or the animals or anything else. It was the sense of control. Mm-hmm. It was this idea that... Um, Every morning, every night, I was saying, this is something we need to do. And of course, when our children are young, the only the only tool they have is to resist. Mm-hmm. And so that's why she was doing it. She needed to feel a sense of control over her own body. And so um, we started thinking, okay, well, how? What, what would make this acceptable to you? <laughs> and, and what she came up with was brushing teeth in the living room. <laughs> and so we used fluoride-free toothpaste for a while so that it doesn't matter if you spit it out or not. And for probably three or four months, we brushed teeth in the living room. Mm-hmm. And is that a solution I would ever have thought of by mm-hmm. myself? I mean, in a million years, I would never have thought, well, let's brush teeth in the living room. But when we understand what is her underlying need and we try and meet that need in, by doing whatever it is um, that, that she wants to do, then we get the teeth brushed mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing is done. And so, you know, some children will resist getting dressed in the morning. Well, why do they resist getting dressed? Is it because they don't like being cold? Well, then 
get dressed in front of the heater, that solution will work. But if it's because they like the feeling of fluffy pajamas on their skin, getting dressed in front of the heater won't work for them. Mm. <laughs> so when we understand what is that underlying need, then the solutions we can generate together will be ones that meet the need. And then we get cooperation and, mm-hmm. and our lives get so much easier. <laughs> and I love everything you said there, Jen, because yeah, it's, it's, it's having respect for your kids is getting curious about what's going on for them. Yeah. And, and also it's, it's, it's saying, you're saying to the parent, you don't have to have all the solutions. Yeah. You can talk to your kids. Yes. About what are, they can be involved can in what the solutions the are. Control, right? Yeah. Yeah. It can, <laughs> but it's a freedom in a way. You don't yes. have to have all the answers. Yes, exactly. Hmm. This is so beautiful. I could probably talk to you for a while about a lot of things. And it's, it's always fun to talk um, in when one is kind of in agreement, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love I love this. So this is giving you this, and and this is coming from your, you know, diving into the research, seeing mm-hmm. what's effective, and seeing what's not effective. Yeah, and and and. Yes, it helps us to make parenting easier today. And also, I mean, it has such profound implications beyond Mm -hmm. that as well. I mean, when we think about our patriarchal culture, which is so based on control, the way we heal patriarchy is, is, I mean, has, has this kind of verbal association of we're vilifying men. (laughs) Men are the problem. Um, Men are not the problem here. We we all have um, a role to play in a patriarchal society. And the way that we heal that is through the relationships we have with our children. Um, Mm -hmm. I I actually interviewed Dr. Carol Gilligan, who's a luminary in, in the field of patriarchal research on patriarchy. And um, she has a new book out on, on the connections between patriarchy and parenting. And, Mm -hmm. and this, this is the tool. This is how we shift our culture. It's when we interact with our, our boys and and we don't say, well, you know, grow up and and stop crying and and be a man, Um, be a big boy. Uh, when when we shift our interaction with our child and we allow them to feel their emotions and we allow them to interact with us in a way that shares that control, that you're right, doesn't allow it doesn't mean that we have to have all the solutions. That means that they are allowed and invited and encouraged to bring some solutions too. It's through these kinds of interactions that we heal some of the the deepest problems that we're having in our society. And so we as parents are in this fortunate, privileged um, role where, where we get to be a huge part of how we're going to shift our, our culture and our society uh, moving forward. I, I absolutely agree. What's in the macro level is in the micro level yeah. and, and how we, you know, parent shifts, how people expect to be treated as adults, yeah. you know, do I expect to have a voice? Do I expect to see other people and wonder what they're needing rather than yeah. how do I get my way? Right. Yes. So it's this incredible, it's this incredible, uh, incredibly powerful thing. And it, it may not be easy. So dear listener, if you're listening and you're like, this sounds amazing and this is really hard for me, it may be hard for you because this may not be the language that you grew up with and it may feel unusual and uncomfortable. So, you know, test the waters, see, try some things that work for you, learn more. Um, 
Yeah. 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 yeah you don't have to fix it all in one go. <laughs> yes, it's not possible. <laughs> yeah. Try, try something, experiment with problem solving a little bit. I have lots of resources on my website for, um, for people who are starting to get involved with problem solving and well, what are some of the challenges that we face with it and how can we overcome those and get more comfortable with it and, and applying it. And, um, we, yeah, we, we don't have to feel as though, well, everything, all of this has to be fixed tomorrow. Otherwise I'm going to screw up my child and <laughs> society is done for um, we, we, we can, we can learn and grow as parents at the same time as we are, uh, helping our children to learn and grow. And, um, yeah, and that's, that's a, an incredibly, um, privileged and, uh, impactful role to be in. Well, Jen, I really appreciate the, the work that you've done. I'm glad that you take in your curiosity and directed <laughs> it in such an impactful way that probably has ripple effects that you have no idea about even so. And it's, um, it's really wonderful. I, I think that, and I appreciate you taking the time, of course, to come and talk to me and, and share your, your voice with my audience. It's really lovely. Um, so where can people find your, more about what you do in the Parenting Mojo podcast? Yeah, everything that I do is is funneled through yourparentingmojo.com. So the podcast is there. Um, it's also on Apple Podcasts and, and other places as well. But um, yeah, so social media and uh, blog posts that kind of draw ideas together across um, a lot of the episodes. And in the episodes, we tend to dive deep into a specific topic and, and what do the world's experts say on this particular topic. And then in blog posts, I try and draw ideas across and say, okay, well, how do we tie these together? And what does this mean for, for how we parent in real life. Um, I have a bunch of research resources on um, the intersection of race and parenting as well. So if parents are thinking, okay, I want to start talking with my child about race, about uh, Black Lives Matter and, and things like that, how do I even think about that? There's a bunch of research, research-based resources on that too um, as well. So yourparentingmojo.com. And thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been a ton of fun. <laughs> great. It's great to, to share um, ideas and insights with, with somebody who's uh, um, who, who really gets it. <laughs> yes, yes. It was so much fun. Thank you. This was a fascinating conversation, don't you think? I mean, wow. <laughs> the whole idea of, you know, just understanding why our children resist things. And actually, that's something that we're going to be talking about. I mentioned in the beginning, in the Mindful Parenting Free Training, we're going to be talking about why your kids don't listen to you. And Jen hints at it and talks about it a little bit here, like with behaviors. But in the free training, we're going to be talking specifically about the words that you say and why your kids resist certain words that you say. So this is an incredibly valuable training. And, um, and I, I hope you'll be there. That's at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. You should click over now while you're remembering and before you get distracted by other things, mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. Did I say that really fast? I think I did. Mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. Okay, you've heard it enough now. I'm sorry. But I love this conversation with Jen. She's got such a great attitude and just this drive for understanding, right? This is what we need. We need to understand, develop more understanding so we can stop being maybe so rigid and be a little bit more creative and flexible and curious. And that's what we talk all about a lot in that mindfulness piece is that curiosity. Make sure you tune in next week. We are going to be talking to Tina Payne Bryson. She is an amazing parent expert. She's co-author with Dr. Dan Siegel of books such as 
the whole brain child and no drama discipline. And we're going to be talking about discipline explained. We're going to be talking about how to discipline, what it means. It, this is a really, really insightful episode. I learned so many things. So make sure you tune in next Tuesday. Tuesday's when it drops. And I thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the Mindful Mama tribe, whether you're a mama or a papa, it doesn't matter. Um, This is an amazing place to be, to be really transforming these generational patterns. I'm so, so glad you're here listening and keeping an open mind and maybe even doing that work. Um, Yeah, awesome. So if this was a helpful episode, share it, all that stuff. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Namaste.